And uh, so we're doing money today. Because you cannot, with a straight face anyway, do a series called Controversy and not talk about financial stewardship, especially to the church. You just can't, right? It's very controversial, I'll just say that. Um, One of my favorite quotes, I have a group of favorites, and they're all typically athletes. It didn't mean for them to be very good quotes, but they ended up being good ones anyway. This one is by Shaquille O'Neal, right? I'm tired of hearing about money, he says. Money, 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 money. I just want to play the game, drink Pepsi, and wear Reeboks. (laughs) And if you don't get the joke, that's worth money to them. Understand, those are sponsors, but some of you will get that on the way home. But I, I like that. Because that is, that is kind of our attitude on money, isn't it? I mean, money, money and stewardship itself is not controversial. It's not a controversial topic. Me telling you what the Bible says about it is very controversial. Okay? And that's why we're going to talk about it today. And I do know, and I'm very aware of the public's impression that this is all pastors talk about. Right? It's right up there. Whenever I talk to people, especially in the South or in Texas, why don't you go to church anymore? It is usually, number one, all the pastor did was talk about hell, right? That's all he did. He used to talk about hell every week, I guess. I don't know. Just got up 52 weeks in a year and talked about hell. The number two is all he wanted was our money. Those are the two reasons people say they leave the church. The thing is, Jesus spent 10% of the time teaching, teaching on money. 10%. I mean, for an average pastor, that's five sermons a year. The last time I did it was last May, right? So I'm way behind, if you could do the math, right? I mean, so if Jesus was a pastor today, he'd be spending more than a month talking to us on finances of different, you know, shapes or directions. It'd be on finances. I mean, people be leaving that church. People be leaving Jesus' church, but that's the way it would look, probably. The truth is, is that money in our culture is a pretty big deal. We're, we're fascinated with it. We are infatuated with it. We're focused on it, postured before it. Everything's, and the media doesn't help, right? It's how to get more money, how to keep the money you have. Debt, your debt, the nation's debt, corporate debt, all kinds. It's all about money, money, money. So for me not to speak on it, for me not to give you a good gospel-centered perspective on what gospel-centered giving looks like would be for me to miss probably one of the most relevant pieces to your puzzle. It'd be unfaithful as a pastor for me not to do this. Okay? So I do want to talk to you, and I really want to encourage you. I mean, currently today, um, now you're going to get varying statistics, and that's fine because you have varying companies and outfits doing the statistics, but somewhere between 6 and 9% of the Christian church in America tithes, gives what they consider a tithe. Tithe meaning 10%. They give at least that, 6 to 9%. If you take that church and say the American church under the age of 30, it's 1%. That's pretty low. Now, this is the deal. This is how relevant this should be for us today, okay? If 6 to 9% of the church had good marriages, but the rest didn't, preachers would be preaching the snot out of that every week, wouldn't they? We'd be books on it, conferences on it. If 94% of the church was in total failure with their, with their marriages, are you kidding? I mean, we'd be preaching on it all the time. We'd be horrible people not to do it. That's what we're dealing with. 94% of the church is in failure on something very important. It's a very deep, deep, deep rooted issue that if you look at it through the lens of the gospel, 
really has deep effects. Okay, so I want to talk about that a little bit, just a little bit today. Today's not a very long service. Um, I do want to start off with basically if we were building a tower or a building, the foundation would be this one statement. All right, this is it. If you hear anything today before you turn me off totally, listen to this God owns everything and we own nothing. God owns everything and we own absolutely nothing. It says this in Psalm 89, verse 11. And actually, there are several Psalms that say this. Okay, I just picked one. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. In another place, Psalm 24, it says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it. It goes on and on and on. Well, what is our role? If he owns it, what do we do? We manage it. We're stewards. That's the biblical word for steward. It just basically means manager. That's who we are. We're managers. Now, the role of a manager is unique. We manage, but we don't own. Okay? The owner owns, the manager manages. It sounds very basic. It sounds like I'm going into a ridiculous depth on that very basic point for us. But when we're poor at managing someone else's possessions, on a good day, we're sloppy. On a bad day, we're stealing. And that's really the truth behind it. You know, my dad, I've told the story several times, my dad owned a bunch of restaurants. Um, and whenever I was coming in, I didn't start off as a manager. I wasn't a typical owner's kid. Okay, I started off on the bottom rung, had the goofy looking hat on, clocked in like everybody else. I did that, but there was this manager that worked there. <laughs> this guy, there was a band that worked. They opened up for some bands that you probably would hear if, or know if I told you the names. But this whole band worked at this one restaurant during the day and they jammed out at night. Well, this, of course, so a lot of girls came in, right? Okay, so the manager, the lead singer of this band, was giving away food to the cute girls. Cute girl comes in, free food. You know? That's a really fast way to be popular, right? Until you get canned. <laughs> Until the inventory doesn't match up and the dude's gone. Right? Because why? Because he was a cruddy manager. He stole. And we look at that and it's such a glaring example. We think of course. But it's very difficult for us to think about ourselves in that in some ways. It is. Right? Now, I'm not simply today, this is important for you to hear, I'm not simply today addressing people who don't give. I'm addressing you who do give. Because I want to talk about gospel-centered giving. If you do give to Legacy, if you're a giver in this church, or if you're visiting and you're from another church and you're faithful at giving there, thank you so much. Let me just tell you from the bottom of my heart, thank you. This is very difficult to do. I've always said a lot of times, 85% of church plants fail. The mass majority of church plants that fail, it's because financially they could not stay above water. It's a financial issue, most of the time. Second to that is the pastor burns out. Um, but those are usually the two ways. Now, so thank you for doing it. If you don't, if you go to another church and you don't give faithfully, generously, sacrificially, joyfully, um, consistently, if you don't do that, you're going to learn something today. You'll, you'll learn. Maybe we'll help untangle some knots together as we go through this. Okay? I had to be taught this. This isn't just something you just know. Right? It's not something you just know. I will tell you this. The win is not tithing 10%. That's not the win. The win is not being honorable with 10%. I hope to wreck that for you today. I mean, listen, that's a cow. I'm very looking forward to tipping over, okay? The win today 
is how you handle 100%. Again, God owns everything. We are stewards and managers. The win is in how we handle all of what he has given us. Okay? It's possible, and I've seen it many times, where you have families that do a really good job of giving no less than 10%. Very generous, very consistent, very sacrificial, and very cheerful. And then they turn around and they do such a very lousy job with the remaining part of their increase that it's not drawing any glory to God. It's not gospel-centered in any way. That's a fail. That's a fail. That's wrong. Okay? Can you spend every dollar to God's glory? Every single dollar. That's difficult to think about, isn't it? You think about it. Plumbing. We had a plumber yesterday come to our house on a Saturday. Yes, that was delightful. I mean, gas bill, food. Everyone's probably going to eat after this, right? Can you spend every dollar? See, what we're doing when I ask questions like that, it starts to destroy this divide that we put up between the secular and the sacred. There are God things... And then there are realistic things, Luke. I mean, Luke, there are spiritual things that are all God and stuff like that. And then there's like real world, secular things. And never the twain shall meet, right? So even with our finances, we do that. We'll say, well, this is God's money, and that is in this shoebox. And then this is the rest of the money in this shoebox. And that's my money. That's my money, right? That's secular, sacred. And we're actually separating those things. Everything is spiritual. Everything is sacred. That's what I'm telling you. That's the win. Now, with this being true, I do want to focus today. I do not have time to talk about how you handle the majority of your increase. Okay, I don't have time to do that. Um, the, the, how you do your bills. And listen, these are important things to teach on, and I would love to do that, and we will do that. I have to focus on one thing, and I will focus on the most controversial, hence it's in this series, right? Which is what we do with the church. Now listen, there is no win in this for me. No win. Because it could look like I'm grabbing right now. I know it can. But this is the deal. Most of you in 5, 10, 20 years will not be here. You'll be in another church. You'll either move. Hopefully all of you are here. I'd love to see all of you for the rest of my life until we all die together. Right? That'd be fun. But the deal is, is realistically, realistically, some of you are going to move. Some of you might get ticked off with us and leave. Something, wherever you go, I want you to have a gospel centered understanding on giving. Okay? All right? Again, this is not a grab for me. This is probably one of the hardest things to talk on. Right? It is. It's difficult. So, there. I openly invite questions, by the way. Um, I expect a bunch and I hope to get a bunch. So, this number up there, if you have any questions on this as we preach or as I talk to you about this and we look in the Word, text them up. Um, Jeremy will be filling through those and then we'll, we'll, we'll answer the best we can. Okay? I will tell you, my family, since me and Paula have been married, we have always given to the church. And we have never given less than 10%. Now, I'm not saying that's what you need to do, and I'm going to explain that a little bit later on. We're going to talk about the percentages and all that stuff, okay? But I'm just saying we've always been very generous as a family. We have not, however, done it for the right reasons. And that's important. Why you give determines on whether you're doing it through a gospel-centered lens or not, and that matters hugely. That has a very big import. Typically, there are two ways that we give. Two big, two big food groups, right? One of them is guilt, right? And you've all been there. Missionary comes into town, 
pastor comes in and they, the slides, and you see a kid up there with the ribs and the flies all over the face and all the, stat, the stats, man, are staggering. They're always big statistics, you know, boom, 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 boom. And you look at that and then the thing is, is you see, and, and listen, these tragedies are serious. These are, there really are kids with ribs sticking out. There really are flies. All of this is serious. They do, but I mean, this guy's like with one paycheck, you can get, I don't know, 63 cows and... Sierra Leone. I mean, with but but here you sit in your fancy air conditioning, in your fancy clothes, and you're going to get in your fancy cars. Now get out your checkbook and write a check. Now that's guilt. That's manipulation. Actually, you're being compelled to write something against. You're 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 not doing it cheerfully. You're doing it because you are compelled to do it because you feel bad and you feel like God is going to zap you if you don't do it. Now. Is it bad to give to those things? No. We do as a family and we do as a church. Give to desperate situations. Give to distant situations. Dig wells overseas. Buy sheep. Do all of that stuff. Do it all. But do it for the right reason. And yes, it matters. Yes, it matters. Okay? Now, the other way is prosperity. Maybe not out of a sense of guilt, but possibly out of a sense of greed. The idea that we will get if we give. If I give X amount of dollars, God will bring X amount of increase into my house. Right? And it becomes this magical formula of gaining spiritual blessing. Almost like a a Christian version of it takes money to make money. Right? That's virtually what it is. I'm telling you, that also is incorrect. Now... Will God increase you if you sow? Yes, He will. He loves a cheerful giver. You will reap what you sow. But whenever we look at that text, it's not saying exclusively that this will happen financially. It's not saying financially you're just going to be swallowed up. You will be taken care of. You will. It could be in some other area that God sees fit as a very good and benevolent father for you and your family. Okay? It could be finances. For us, it has been from time to time. For us, there's been some times where it's not come and we've been very thin, but God has been very, very good with his grace in our life in other ways. Does that make sense? Personally, as a side note, I think a lot of the increase is going to be stored up for you in a storehouse where rust and moth and theft will not grab at it. I think that's where a lot of our increase comes from. But I do think a lot of it comes to us here on earth. But it is not a formula for us to manipulate God into dumping a dump truck full of cash in our house. It's not going to happen that way. Alright? And a variant of this, a, a variant of that, is giving to God, not out of a sense of greed, but out of a sense of fear. Because you don't want to lose what you do have. If I don't tithe, if I don't give generously, then God will take something from me. He will take my truck, take our car, take my job, take something. Again, that's not gospel-centered. So, take a guy, dude A. Dude A, he gives 15%. That's a lot, right? Let's just round it up, 20. He gives 20%. That's quite a bit of money, right, to the church. That's, that's, that's pretty benevolent. He gives a, a tremendous amount to the church. Yet, he's in it, man, he's wanting more. He's got this formula figured out. He's given 20 because he wants 40 back. And he's determined to abuse the Bible and make it build him up to make him think that's going to really work. Then you've got Dude B over here. Dude B is his, I don't know, his clone. Okay, so he makes the same amount of money, gives the same amount of money, but he's doing it from a gospel-centered perspective. A gospel-centered lens is what he's looking through. He's imaging 
He's mimicking, he's echoing a benevolent God, which we're going to talk about here in a minute. So he does that. Now, the church gets two checks, right? Same amount of money. As a church, I can't tell any difference, but God can. God sees a huge delta in between the hearts of those two men. It's very important. It's not just the amount. It is the heart. It is not just the amount. It is the heart. God looks at your motivations for giving. I mean, if the heart never mattered, if the heart issue wasn't an issue, and all we had to do was just toe this thin line of obedience and legalism, Jesus would have been gushing over the Pharisees, would he not? He'd have loved them. On the outside, they pulled it off. But he said, you guys are empty and full of dead men's bones because their heart was not matching. Now, if we don't have those lenses to look through as we give, what do we have? You should be able to, hopefully after today, this is something that's a little bit more firmly established, you should be able to draw a straight line from your giving to the gospel. You should be able to do that. In 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, you know, so... Corinthians, this is the second letter, which is actually probably the third, but it's the second one in the Bible. We have of Paul writing to the church of Corinth. He's basically spending two chapters, chapter 8 and chapter 9. He's talking to them about what a good, healthy, generous giver looks like through a church, right? He, he brags, he's gushing about this church in Macedonia and how they gave. So he's talking about the giving church. Right in the middle of that, he sticks this. In verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He just ups and preaches the gospel right in the middle of this. Why? Why is he doing that? He's not appealing to their sense of guilt. He's not appealing to their sense of greed. He's appealing to the cross and the empty tomb. That is what he wants to be the Corinthians' foundation for giving. He's not wanting to see Macedonia pour out all of this money and them and their pride go, we can one-up that. We're Corinth. We all speak in tongues. We can actually do that. We can one-up that. You know, They don't want to look at that and go, well, maybe if we match them, Paul will be better to us. They're not try- he, Paul is saying, forget all that garbage. It's about a God who made himself poor for you that you would become extravagant. That's what he's doing. So, here's the controversy. I'm going to pepper in a couple points of controversy. This is probably the number one one I hear. Luke, Luke, I'm too poor to give or tithe. I will do it when I have more money and when I get more stable financially. That's probably one of the most common things that come up whenever I do speak with Christians. Okay, What I want to show you in this, what I want to show you is that Christ did not place himself on the cross in the same form that he created the universe. Let me explain this a little bit. Jesus, before he was on the earth, walking, breathing our air, looking like us, speaking our language, or Aramaic, it's not really, no one in here speaks Aramaic, but you know what I'm saying. So whenever Jesus was on earth, that is not the same form that he was when he was at the right hand of God in all of his glory, creating the universe and pouring the oceans and creating subatomic particles. That's not how it looked. There was actually an impoverishing that got him from A to B. Christ impoverished himself, became in a posture of poverty 
to do his work on the earth. This makes a lot of people feel uncomfortable. Okay, The incarnation. This is basically a teaching on the incarnation, which we didn't spend a lot of time on in this series. Now, he remained 100% God, but he became 100% man. No, I don't know how he did that. I don't know how he was able to make himself base and to give up his glory and still be 100% God. But we do know that that's the truth. So, he emptied himself. He became one of us. In order that we would become rich. This is what it says in Philippians 2. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read the first part of it. It's something that everyone's heard a lot. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Right? But he emptied himself. The Bible says this. This isn't my theology. This is the Bible's theology. And we believe what the Bible says. He emptied himself. He took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. When we give, as believers and as a church, listen, it's not just you giving generously. This church gives generously, okay? When we give from a stature of poverty, we reflect Christ and we benefit others. We reflect, it smells like Jesus. It smells like Jesus. It comes from our lack and it benefits somebody else. So you have Jesus plus poverty plus persecution plus affliction plus sacrifice equals grace. Extravagant grace for you and for me. That's the formula. That's how it it, it bears down on us. The gospel in this, I mean the gospel road in this text right here is that he emptied himself and became poor for you so that you could become rich. Right? Because you couldn't perform well enough, but he could. You couldn't behave well enough, but he could. You couldn't do what you needed to do to please God. So he impoverished himself, came and did the mighty work that you were never able to do so that he could take a punishment that you couldn't possibly bear. That's the gospel. Paul is preaching the gospel as he's talking to people about giving. His ultimate gift was very sacrificial, very benevolent, and it came from a posture of poverty. See, there's this lie that tells you and tells me that poverty keeps us from being generous. It keeps us. I would disagree with that. Once again, text your questions in. I would disagree with that. I would say when you give from an impoverished standpoint, it smells like the gospel. It looks Christ-like. That's what I would say. Luke... Now you sound like one of those preachers trying to get money even out of the poor. It does sound like that. I'm just repeating Paul. This is what Paul says. I want you to look in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you have a Bible, turn there to that. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Listen, if you don't have a Bible that you like, we have free Bibles by the door. Feel free to grab one on the way out. It's yours. He saw this church in Macedonia, and Paul got really excited about it. This is what he says in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, remember he's talking to the Corinthian church. See, the deal is, is the Corinthian church is supposed to be getting an offering ready. He's about to send Titus to go and pick it up. And he's basically like, look guys, y'all are the one that wanted to do this, and you already started it, so I hope you finish well. I'm going ahead and let you know now. Get the, get the offering ready so it doesn't look weird whenever Titus gets there to pick it up. That's what's going on. Okay, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, that's a pretty big deal, he's using big words, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, I mean poverty is an extreme word, 
he's putting extreme before that. All of that is overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So what is he saying? He's saying Macedonia, take their affliction, their poverty, their sacrifice. And what does that equal? Generosity for the saints. It looks like Christ's formula. It looks like the same thing. He sees the gospel in this. And I'll tell you, we, we would miss a pretty big moment if we did not mention this, at least, as we, as we fly through this. It's probably one of the most incredible gifts given, second to salvation. Look in Mark 12, verses 41. If you have your Bible. If not, he's going to put it up there. Do you have that one? Yeah, you got it. And he sat down opposite. This is Christ. This is Jesus Christ. And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. So in the Greek, I don't know what that would be today, but a penny is a pretty... Okay, it's a penny. Can we just pretend that that's a penny here? I mean, it's not very much money. All right? We can agree on that. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly... I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. This text cannot express poverty any more deeply than this. It can't. It's, I mean, it's not like she had a gazillion bucks and gave it all away. She had two small copper coins and gave it away. And it was all she had to live on. That's deep, 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 extreme poverty. And then she'd emptied herself. She emptied herself. Where's the gospel road in this? Why are we even talking about this today? How does it pertain? Jesus is the true and better widow who didn't just empty himself financially, but he emptied himself as of emptying his life, not for the benefit of a tabernacle or a temple, but for the benefit, the extravagant benefit for you and for me. Jesus is a true and better widow for us. That's the gospel road. If we disconnect the gospel from how we give, all you are left with is guilt, greed, or trying to obey so God doesn't zap you or get mad at you. All of it's going to be unhealthy motivation. All of it. There's only one good way to give your finances. It's to be a good steward and to, it's to basically to image the gospel. To look like Christ as you do it. So, Where are we as a church? We believe, and I think this is somewhere on the website. I don't think it's with the rest of the beliefs. It might be on like the giving page or something like that. I don't even know. We believe as a church that we are called to give in a sacrificial, consistent, and cheerful manner, first and foremost, to the local church and then to wherever we feel God has aimed our hearts. We do believe God has called us to be very, very generous givers. Once again, you can text your questions in. Controversy. And this is a big one. I get this a lot. Luke. Luke. Nowhere does the New Testament stipulate or prescribe giving or tithing. That is the Old Testament, which isn't even binding on us anymore. It is amazing to me how many Old Testament scholars there are in the world that you don't even know until you bring up giving. Then everybody all of a sudden has a degree in OT from whatever, you know. It's like they don't even know where all the books are in the Bible. But man, as soon as you say something about giving, they know all the differences between OT law and Jesus came to fulfill and all that stuff. It's, it's bizarre. You know, 
I will tell you, the Old Testament tithe, whenever you see the word tithe in the Old Testament, a lot of times that word is used because, yes, it does literally mean tenth, but it was used as a word of summation for all of their tithes. The Hebrew people gave somewhere between 23 and 30 percent of what they had come in, not 10 percent. There was no 10 percent tithe for the nation of Israel. It's closer to 30. A third of that, if not more, somewhere between 8 and 10 percent of what they gave went to parties, went to celebrations. I mean, what would that look like today? Billions and billions of dollars going in to celebrate what God has done in our life through party. They're just partying together, eating together, hanging out, bringing people. A nice big chunk, an equal sized chunk of the 23 to 30%, depending on which scholar you listen to, would go to take care of the priests and their servants as they took care of widows and orphans. So that would be basically all church overhead right there. Right? That's what they gave. Now, The New Testament, it does not prescribe an amount. And I think God did that on purpose. I think God did that on purpose. Jesus, but I will tell you, if this has been maybe an argument you've used in the past, Jesus Christ did not come to nullify or ix the Old Testament law. He came to fulfill it. So he took some Old Testament principles, and he didn't just go, Ah, I'm Jesus, I'm here now. He actually took those principles and it was like volume on a stereo. He just amped it up. Oh, you thought that murdering was bad. Oh, I'm just telling you now, thinking it in your head is now the new murder. Oh, you thought sleeping around was bad? The new sleeping around? Doing it in your head. You know? He took principles and he didn't say enough with that. He said, I'm going to raise the ante a little bit. That's what Christ did. Why would he take a generous people who were already giving a good consistent amount and say, you know what, I'm Jesus, I'm here. You don't have to give anymore. Forget all that. That never happens. Jesus didn't come to abolish generosity. (laughs) That's just weird. We don't see that anywhere in the Bible. He didn't come and say, you don't have to be generous givers anymore, because I'm here, and I fulfilled the old law. That is not what's going on. He actually takes that and says, you should give, quit giving like the Pharisees. You should give, give through a gospel-centered lens. We have chapter after chapter that show us this. So, Jesus' intent was not to come and erase stewardship and give us ownership. That doesn't happen anywhere in the Bible. And there's also this weird teaching out there, I wish I had time to go off on it, that God somehow gave the devil ownership of the world. That's garbage too. I don't even know where that came from. The devil doesn't have ownership on anything. God owns everything. Let me say it again. God owns everything. We own nothing. Okay? Now there is the devil. So what am I saying in all this? For many of you, many, underscore that word, many, 10%, what we would call a tithe, that should be the basement, not the ceiling. It should be the basement of your giving. That's not the gold standard. That's just something we've come up with in the Western world, and I couldn't even tell you where that started. Why do I say many? Because what is sacrificial for one person is going to be different for another person. I mean, let's just take the the number 10, 10%, okay? 10% for a single mom working a job and a half, that's going to be really, really sacrificial, I would imagine. I would imagine. But a single dude with no responsibility but himself working $350,000 a year job, 10% a joke. That's a joke. That's not going to be very sacrificial to him. He's not even going to feel that. He's a single dude. You know? It's going to be totally different. It is possible for many people to give 10% and that not even be sacrificial at all. It's depending on how much they make. So, What God is getting at, what Christ is getting at, what Paul is getting at repeatedly is that sacrificial and generous 
are the words. Don't think it, see, we're so hungry as people, as flesh, to have laws govern us. Give me laws to govern me. Give me walls. Give me lines. That's what we want. And he's saying, no, it's not going to be like that. You need to be generous, and you need to be sacrificial, and cheerful, and joyful, and consistent, and faithful. That's what you need to be. That number might be different. The point is to give sacrificially. It's not a flat tax. Right? (coughs) Giving to the kingdom of God is not a flat tax. Well, Luke, how do you know if it's sacrificial? Does it alter your lifestyle? Does it? When you sacrifice something, you're going to notice an effect. Whenever you do your budget, is it hard to see around it? If a third person were to come in, you got audited. We'll just say that. You got an audit. And somebody comes in and looks into your finances. Would they look at that and would it be right up there with cable bill? Or would they go, ooh, this, must, this guy must be a Christian. This girl, she must be a, in some church. She must love God something. Because there is, there is enough going out to where it is noticeable for me. As a business, can you do that? You know? That's how you know. We're to be good, sacrificial, even hilarious givers. This is what it says in 2 Corinthians 9. Don't turn there. I'm going to read it in verse 6. The point is this, Paul says, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. Cheerful here, it just means merry or hilarious. He's talking about our disposition. He's not saying, like, just crack up every time you give a gift. He's saying have a hilarious and merry disposition as you gift, as you give, right? He could have easily said just give 10%, but he didn't. I mean, they could have said that many times, and they don't, right? So our conscience, led by the Holy Spirit, must help us decide, not just on the amount of what we give, but on our disposition, on our heart, right? Because God was not obligated to be a hilarious giver. And God was not obligated to be a sacrificial giver. And so as we are launched into a new life, because of the passion He spent for us, What does that do for us? We get to echo and point to that with how we live our lives. That's the gospel. I mean, that's just the gospel. So, controversy. Uh Uh-oh. Controversy, another one. Luke, you can give your tithe to anyone you want and not your local church because it says nowhere in the New Testament that you give your tithe to the local church. Once again, please have some grace for me. This is hard stuff to preach on because I know what this makes me look like. People are going to listen to this on iTunes. We get like two hits a week. I'm just joking. We get more than that. But someone's going to listen to this and they're going to go, this dude's out of his mind. He's preaching for 40 minutes on giving to his church, you know. Again, I already said, it's not this church. Wherever you go, you need to do this. This is what it says in Malachi. Yes, that's in the Old Testament. And we still obey it. Malachi 3, verses 8 through 10. Did I give you that one? Okay, thank you. You are cursed with a curse. For you were robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Now, we don't have storehouses today, right? It's kind of an odd deal. The storehouse was a part of the temple where they kept all the finances, all the stuff, okay? The temple is where the orphans were taken care of, the widows were taken care of. The people of Israel were ministered to by the priests, all right? That's what's going on. Malachi was speaking for God regarding the fact that the people of Israel did so lousy and were not giving generously that it actually shut down the work of the priests. They weren't even able to do their job. They're all at Turkey Creek getting second jobs. You know, they're all 
If you work at Turkey Creek, we love you. I'm not, it wasn't a slam on Turkey Creek. I'm just saying they're all getting second jobs. They're all having to do something, and guess what? No one's getting taken care of, and that irritated God. So he spoke to it through Malachi. It's part of what he's saying right here. Now, today, the Spirit of God, it no longer dwells in the temple anymore, does it? No. Where does it dwell? In us. It doesn't dwell in the temple anymore. It dwells in us. Right? What the temple used to do is what the modern church does now. Taking care of the disenfranchised, the desperate and hurting cries of the city, that's the church's job. Right? You can see easily what's going on here. The institution of the temple, along with all of its responsibilities, has been replaced by the modern church. So, now listen, I have in the past, I've dealt with people because me and my wife, we live on support. So what does that mean? It means we go out and we raise my, I raise my own salary, okay? I'll, I'll be gone this summer for a couple weeks at a time. And, and the deal is, I'm out raising my own salary. Now, when we do that, I bump it, I've been bumping into people, we've done this for 13 years now, that all the time, these are folks that are a little jaded with their church, and so they give whatever they want to the church, and then they give whatever they want to parachurch ministries. Parachurch just means extra local, outside the local church. Listen, I am all for parachurch ministries. I used to work with one for many years. I love them. And the whole reason that parachurch ministries exist is because a lot of times churches don't do a very good job of meeting those needs. Churches have done lousy in the prisons in the past. So what do we have? Prison ministries. I'm not going to hold that against them. I'm glad they're there. The campus ministry, don't even get me started. I mean, the church has totally anything but failed on the college campus. And so what do we have? We have a sea of campus ministries out there pushing the plow. I'm not against parachurch ministries. The deal is, is they're not helping your broken marriages. They're not the ones that are going to be before God and be judged with how they pastored you. That's not where you go for teaching and counsel. That's not where you go to be led. That's your storehouse. That's something totally different. So Luke, are you saying to stop giving to campus crusade? No. I'm not. I'm saying give, but first and foremost, do what God has told you. Wherever your storehouse is, be faithful and consistent and generous and cheerful with it. That's all I'm saying. Now, some will give in other directions because they don't agree with something their church is doing. I knew a guy that their church was building a $6 million foyer. He's like, Luke, I have a problem with that. (laughs) And so he should (laughs) have. We're spending $6 million on this foyer, and it's just choking me up inside. I'm just, I can't deal with it. I'm just going to stand what we would tithe to the church to you. And that was a lot of money, by the way. And I said, you know what you should do? Rather than do that, you should find a new church. Listen, if you have problems with a massive problem with the way your church spends money, maybe the issue isn't withholding stewardship and being a poor steward before God. Maybe the issue is, is you should probably sit down and talk with the pastor and see if God is having you stay there or leave. That's all I'm saying. That's a church issue. That shouldn't affect your obedience at all, right? So, if I start building $6 million foyers here in Knoxville, and you're like, you know what? I love Luke and the team there. We love Legacy, but ah, it's a $6 million foyer. people starving on the streets. Do we really need that? And you sit down and I blow you off? Leave. Leave. Go find a healthy church. If we ever get to that place, go find a healthy church. But, the alternative of being a consumer drain, not a very good option. Not, not a very good option. So, why does Knoxville care about this? I am landing the plane. Why does Knoxville care? Because we're ripping the city off if only 6 to 9% of the active Christian church in Knoxville is actually trying to give 
into the city with all of its needs. I did the math. It's not very good math, so I have a big approximation in there. Somewhere between six and 8,000 households by this factor. Six to 8,000 households in the Knox metro area is basically fueling financially the church work and activity in a church of, or in a city metro area of just under a million people. Six to 8,000 households for a million people? That's not going to happen. I mean, it's just not going to happen. That's a lot. I mean, could you imagine? I mean, the average church in America is 80 people big. Eight. We're almost there. We're almost average. Just so you know that. We're almost an average church. Now, the deal is, is it takes a church of about 200 to be able to financially support one pastor. One pastor. That means the average church in Knoxville can't even afford its own pastor. They're at Turkey Creek. Right? Now, is that church being taken care of? Uh, not unless he's Superman. I doubt it. It might be a little difficult. Do you see where I'm going? The city would take notice. What would happen? I'm not talking about thousands of more dollars a week. I'm talking about billions of dollars. Billions of dollars being dumped into... I mean, if you multiplied by a factor of 10 what the church in Knoxville is doing, you're still only up to 60%. Right? But if you multiplied it by a factor of 10, you're giving billions of dollars. With the homeless, the single moms... Would they feel that? Would the orphans feel that? Would downtown feel that? You know they would. Would the world take notice? Yes. Yes, they would. We would actually be doing something to match what we're saying. It's a novel principle there. But to actually demonstrate the gospel instead of just proclaiming it. Does that make sense? Now, I want to talk about where you are, and then I'm done. Which is, I'll be done in just like two minutes. Do you, do you give sacrificially, joyfully, and consistently to the local church? I didn't say legacy, I said the local church. Do you do that? If yes, again, thank you. But why? Why do you do it? If you're faithful, and it's because you're trying to get more or because you're guilty because you wouldn't, if that is you, I'll just say, as a team of elders, if we had a church that was very generous and sacrificial, but it was because they were either being greedy or guilty, it would break our hearts. It would break our hearts, man. We want you guys to do everything through the gospel lens. I hope if you hear anything from week to week, you hear that. How you are a husband, wife, father, roommate, employee. We want everything done through the lens and anchored in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what we want. Even the way you give. Even the way you give. So, thank you for giving sacrificially if you give sacrificially. But are you on autopilot? Thank you for being generous if you're generous. Thank you for being consistent. Some of you are very consistent. I can set my watch to it. Why are you doing that? Why? Right? Some of you, your answer would be no. No, I'm not. Giving sacrificially, joyfully, or consistently to the local church. I would ask you, what is making you a slave to finances? There's a lot on money I'd like to talk about. We just don't have time for it. We don't really worship money. We just worship with our money. Right? No one just worships a stack of money. But we worship through how we spend it. And whenever we don't do a good job of stewarding, it starts to own us. That's the thing about money. It'll start to own us. Right? What is it that is making you a slave? Is it fear? Are you fearful that you can't make it on what you have? Is it unbelief? 
Is it unbelief? You just you don't have a theology that agrees? Is it pride? I don't like the way things are going around here. I'm just going to hold it until I find the perfect church. And then it might take me six months. You know, I don't know. I mean, what would it be? What would it be for you? I will tell you the gospel has removed every reason we could ever possibly have for not giving generously, sacrificially, and joyfully. The gospel has removed them all. Because we're serving a king who gave from an impoverished posture. We're serving a king who made himself base to be like one of us so that we could become rich and extravagant through what he did. The gospel removes everything we would say. Our king, he was a very benevolent giver. There's one thing, I'm just going to read this, so don't turn to it. But in 2 Corinthians 8.3, Paul says this, I caught this, some of you caught this when we read it. For they gave according to their means, speaking of the church of Macedonia, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. Now hear this, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Begging us earnestly, that's nuts. That's, I mean, today it's the other way around, isn't it? Pastors are begging earnestly the congregation to be faithful. Paul is saying something opposite, right? And so that's why when pastors speak on it, and they have to, it's sink or swim for the church. It can be looked at like, oh, he's just grabbing again. He's just grabbing. Most of you guys have been here long enough. I don't ever even talk on this. Some of you are like, hey, do you even like have an offering box? Where is it? You know, We don't even talk about it. And it's not because we belittle it. It's because I know this is what goes on in people's heads. I just says, now listen, if you were like, if after today you listen to it and you're like, whatever, you're not even answering all the questions you could be, my theology doesn't agree, I'm not going to be generous. I'm not going to be sacrificial. And I'm not, because that's Old Testament, or whatever you would say. If that's you, listen, we will make it as a church. Whatever church you go to, I'm sure it will make it financially. We will make it. I am not hungry for your money. Like I said, we go out and raise our own support. I am not hungry for your money. I am hungry for the gospel. I am hungry for you doing something through the gospel. You smelling like it as a family. And the world watching on and being shocked. They're jobbing on the ground because of how generous churches can be. How generous Christians can be. That's what I am hungry for. Now, some of you The last category I'm going to deal with and then I'm done is you don't give it all because you're not really even a part of the king's family. Not a Christian. Okay, Some of you are very aware of that. Some of you are very secure in the fact that you're not a Christian. Some of you aren't really sure whether you are or not. You kind of wonder. Some days you're pretty sure you are and other days you're pretty sure you're not and you're somewhere in between. Right? You've not turned your life totally to Christ. You still have it inflected on yourself to some degree. Okay? Let me just tell you, my only appeal to you is to turn to a benevolent gift giver. Your king came as a servant. Your king came as a servant, humbled himself as a servant. He's not some ivory tower, he's a servant. He continually humbled himself over and over again, being stripped of the dignity that was always due him, the glory that he'd always known. Giving that up voluntarily. He's doing that. Even to death on a cross for crying out loud. He did this for you. Not only because you can't follow his rules. He did this for you because you can't even follow your own rules. I mean, you come up with your own code of ethics. Good luck. You're just going to change it. They'll just be situational ethics. You can't even keep your own rules. But God gifted you with a servant who would. Who could. He was perfect. And you're not. Now, to you, the only economy 
I want to talk about is not the financial one of earth. It's a cosmic economy and the cosmic debt that you have with you. If you remain as a person. Now listen, I wish if there was something I can do, if I could just make you be a Christian, I would. I can't. I'm just going to appeal to you. Okay? If you go on with your life and you do not turn to a Christ who is turned towards you, you will go to the grave with that cosmic debt still in tow. And you'll have to pay it. Even though it's been freely paid for you, you will have to pay it. Your debt will go to the grave with you unpaid. That's why we have Christ who is the better widow. Jesus is the better widow who gave all he had to live on, just like she did. And yet it was reckoned to you and me as the greatest gift ever. The greatest gift ever. Your life depends on how you see that perfect gift. That is the gospel.